You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. As we go through chapter two today, we will recap some of the things from chapter one. So I'm not going to necessarily do a a summary uh, to begin with. I'm kind of going back and forth uh, through my uh, through chapter two today as we go through chapter two today. Uh, Just so you know where we're kind of going today, we are going to break the text chapter two today into three different sections. We'll make our points points that I believe are obvious in God's word, things that I believe that God wants us to prophetically hear today. So let's start by reading the first four verses, and then we'll get to work. I'll I'll have you stand if you don't mind, at least just the first four verses. Uh, I'll pray over our hearts, and then we'll get to work. So Esther chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, I'll read just the first section. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of this kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, The king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word and just the whole, not even just the the chapter two, but the whole book of Esther. I thank you, Father, that for what you are going to do in our hearts, and, and I pray that you will bear much fruit, Father. I, I, I know the book can be very complicated, Lord Jesus, in, in seeing the intentions and, and the motivations of the heart, but I know that you are in it, Father. I know that. Uh, Lord God, would you open our hearts and help us not to be distracted to see you in this amazing book? And not only that, Lord God, but help us just apply this word to our hearts and to our lives. May we walk out of this place differently, differently today, Lord God, uh, uh, looking more and more like you, Jesus. Uh, We ask all of these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You may be seated. So King Xerxes got himself in a bit of a situation, didn't he? And by the way, they called him Xerxes the Great. Um, and again, his Persian name is Ahasuerus. I may have said last time, and my apologies, that his Hebrew name is Ahasuerus. His actually Persian name that we find in the Hebrew Bible is Ahasuerus, just so we're clear. And his Greek name is Xerxes. It's the same person. So he's had to deal with some drama that he created with his own hands, right? And, and now he's depressed. He's in this depressed and dis- despondent, discouraged place. Have you been there ever? <laughs> And let me say this, we all get into these places because we make some bad decisions, because we, we're all you know, influenced by our pride and our selfishness. And, and when we do, we are particularly susceptible to bad counsel. Be careful who you confide in. Be careful who you receive counsel from, especially when you're in your vulnerable moments. So the great King Xerxes who ruled over the Persian Empire, one of the greatest empires 
Uh, apparently, they said that it was three million square miles wide and, and big, multiple languages, nations, and people groups. The most powerful men in the history of the world to that day, the richest man on earth, he's now lonely, he's sad, he's depressed, and he receives bad counsel. That's where he's at. How did he get into this position? And here's the big idea number one. If you chase the glory, you will get the misery. If you chase the glory, if I chase the glory, I will get the misery. Up until this point in the story, uh, what we have seen from this king is that he lived for his own glory. And we've even, if you remember from last Sunday, the first nine verses, it was all about him, all about his greatness. We even had a point last Sunday, you know, he was a big deal, right? Now, here's what we know about the guy. He sits on a throne. He calls himself the king of kings. He calls uh, people in for a six-month party and then another one, kind of a garden party, to feast in his presence, to honor in his name, to honor his name, and he wants his orders to be obeyed. He wants women to be brought to him. He's a guy who lived for his own glory. It's all about me. It's always been about me. It's totally about me. And he ends up chasing glory, and receiving, receiving misery, and that's his problem. And you and I, we need to know, myself included, that we are prone to this same folly. We're prone to this depravity and temptation to think that we're somebody. Uh, and Martin Luther uh, hit the nail on the head in saying that sin is this self-bending in on the self, meaning that we are consumed with ourselves. We are uh, selfish. The, the religion of self that we see being played out and being worshipped today, every human being on, being on planet earth was made to glorify God. They were made to praise God, to worship God, but because of sin, we glorify or seek to glorify ourselves. And that's a big problem. You know, and all of a sudden it becomes not about God, it becomes about my money, my pleasure, my reputation, my hurts, my longings, my plans. And because of that, we end up in misery because the glory is not fitting for any of us. The glory belongs to God alone, amen? The glory is intended for God alone and those who chase glory, they, they end up in misery. So let me ask, whose glory are you living for? It doesn't have to be obvious, like for, you know, King Hasseras. It could be like a, you know, a two out of 10, not a 10 out of 10, like King Xerxes, right? It can be just a little bit, just a little bit. You live a little bit for yourself. You live a little bit for your glory. Because those who chase the glory get the misery. It doesn't matter what, what level you're at. Ask yourself this one specific question. It's a good assessment of the heart to see if you're chasing the glory or giving it to God. In what ways would you want God to be different from who he is? Oh, that's, uh, we can talk about that for a while. I'll, I'll, I'll ask it again. In what ways would you want God to be different from who he is? See, the desire for God to be different is idolatry. That's what it is. And this is very telling because you're not giving God the glory because you, you want a version of God that caters to your appetite, to your desires. It shows discontent. It shows dissatisfaction with who he is or what he's done. Maybe he's allowed some suffering in your life and you're like, right? It shows our selfishness and our rebellion. And so King Xerxes is feeling the misery because he was seeking the glory. And in chapter one, we see that he lost his wife. He lost his queen, right? And, and do you know why? Because if you live for your glory, your own glory, you will be, you'll be impossible to live with. 
I mean, you, you may be able to do it at a two out of 10, but the way he was living at a 10 out of 10, it was impossible to live with this guy. And so his wife tells him no, and she was right, he was wrong, but rather than repent of his sin, he rejected his wife. And so chapter two begins with, after these things. So after some time had passed, that's what the Bible means, after some time had passed, now you need to know that it's been four years between chapter one and chapter two. Did you know that? Four years had passed. So we have four years between chapter one and chapter two. Not only has he lost his wife, well, we know this from chapter one, the end of chapter one, but history tells us outside of scripture that he also lost a war, very significant war. So we may see a different version of, you know, Xerxes the Great, slightly different. He wanted glory. He wanted to be a king who ruled over all the kingdoms of the earth, right? And also what, he, what we need to know is that his father was the great king Darius who had established this empire that he inherited. And his father had one blemish in his military record. And that was that his conquest of Greece failed miserably. And he wanted to conquer Greece and he was defeated. And so Xerxes the Great decided that he would assemble the largest army in the history of the world and that he would march from Persia all the way to Greece and that he would conquer the Greeks and that he would supersede his father's glory. But guess what? He was defeated and he was hum humiliated big time. I'm not saying that you should watch this, but it's depicted in the movie 300. That's what that war was, was, was going on. I mean, that, that's, that's what we're talking about. Now, two and a half thousand years later, we are still telling the story of this guy losing and losing bad. And so to this day, they actually tell the kids this story to the kids growing up in Greek school. And if you enlist in the military, you know, uh, in Greece, they, they talk about, and this is kind of their motto, hey, we crushed Xerxes, welcome to the team. They still have that as a motto. Can you believe it? And so again, if you chase the glory, you get the misery. And now here's the most powerful man on earth, Still, he's miserable, he's lonely, he's defeated, but he's still rich, he's still powerful, and at the same time, he's bored now. Very lethal combination. Okay, point number two that we want to make this morning is this. When you turn, when you don't turn to God, you turn to someone else to replace God. This is a big one. When you don't turn to God, you turn to someone else to replace God. Now, the reality is that King Xerxes doesn't come to his senses to say, hey, I need help. I'm a sinner. I need God's help. Instead of turning to God, he turns to what? To single guys. <laughs> single young guys. I, I, you, it, it, I'm not offending. We have amazing single guys in our church that are very, very wise. But you think he could afford better counseling than that. I mean, really? You go to a single guy for counseling? Like he basically walked into a fraternity and said, hey guys, rough time for me. What do you think I should do? Um, that's exactly what he did. And, and lo and behold, what do the fret guys say? Uh, Let young, beautiful virgins come. Same thing foolish fret guys always say. That'll fix it, right? Uh, so here are his wife's counselors. If you don't turn to God, you'll turn to someone else, Right? That's what they say. You know, they say, don't turn to God. We, we got our own ways and our plan. Who do we turn to? Who have you turned to? Which counselors have you received counsel from? And it was foolish counsel, not wise counsel. And as he turns to his foolish counselors, 
They tell them that the answer is not to turn to God in repentance, but to turn to women, to a woman. You, 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 what you need to do is, is get married. You need a woman. That's what you need. That's what will fix your problem. But see, we do the same thing, don't we? It may not be a woman that we replace God with, but we choose so many other things to cope with, with, with reality. Instead of God, instead of choosing God, don't we? To cope with our depression, to cope with our loneliness, to cope with our frustration. And sometimes the things that we turn to are not even sinful things per se. They're not inherently sinful. We turn to so-called innocent things like sports and work and hobbies and wife and family and, and having kids. And, and then, of course, you have the obvious ones like substance abuse and, and all those things. And then we expect these things, these functional savior, saviors to save us. We expect these things to lift us up and to, and to fix our problem. We expect to have our, I don't know, immorality or our porn problem uh, 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 getting fixed by, by getting married. That's never going to happen. We expect to, ha- you know, by having a baby to fix our depression. It will never happen. But these things will never be able to fix the problem because you can never replace God in the work that he alone can do in our hearts. The best you can do The best we can do by choosing anything other than God is to delay the inevitable. And so ultimately, the story of Xerxes is the story of all of us to some degree in some seasons and in some days. And so the plan is, let's do the Bachelor Persia. That's what the Fred guys come up with. An exciting reality TV show. Let's have a Bunch of beautiful young virgins all come for a year at the spa. Uh, they're going to get prepared for their one night with the king. And the woman that pleases you, king, most shall wear the crown. This will be an amazing television drama. Isn't it amazing that 2,500 years later, we still have reality television based on essentially the same premise? <laughs> because the human heart never changes. The human heart never changes, even though, I mean, rulers may change, kingdoms may change, you know, languages may whatever evolve, but the human heart stays the same. When we replace God in our lives with anything else, we only delay the inevitable. And the inevitable is destruction of our lives and the ones and the lives of those around us. Okay, let's continue with the next few verses, verses five to 11. This is the, sex, the second section that, we're going to read. So verse five. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconia, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Now he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. 
Esther had not made known, very interesting verse, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. The next point that we want to make this morning is this. Men, passivity kills us and our families. Men, passivity kills us and our families. Let me ask you this. How many of you dads read this story with me and freak out? I mean, my brain is becoming like scrambled eggs. <laughs> I kid you not. These girls are probably teenagers. I only have a four-year-old daughter, but I'll tell you, I feel such rage welling inside of me when I read this story, but specifically chapter two. And the more I think about it, the more rage, you know, the, the worse it gets. And, and, and I'm thinking, and I, I probably need to repent of this thought. God, how about one of those Egyptian plagues right about now? <laughs> the flood was nice. <laughs> or is there a way that we can get some of that flaming tar to come down from heaven as, as it hit Sodom and Gomorrah to fall on the Persian king and his chauvinistic men in their reality TV show? Where are the dads? 400 women. What are they saying? What are they doing? But let's put that train thought on, you know, on pause for a minute because we need to introduce Mordecai onto the scene. He appears 52 times in the book. He is to this day, they believe, buried in Iran. So he's an actual, factual, historical figure. And that's always beautiful when history proves the Bible. Now, also, he is a man who is living far away from God. Now, let me explain because there's a lot of history going on behind the scenes. If you read the book of Daniel, and thank God that we actually got a chance to go through the book of Daniel, and we should remember this, what happened was God allowed a king named here Nebuchadnezzar, or Nebuchadnezzar, there we go, I got it right. Does that sound familiar? Right, it does. To come in and to take God's people as a consequence and, and a punishment for their sin and to, to exile them to Babylon. That's the book of Daniel. We should remember that. And then another king came along, by the name of Cyrus, who was not a worshiper of God necessarily, but he was a man who believed that no one should be slaves. And so God used them for his plan and purpose. And so Cyrus made a decree that God's people could go free and they were free to leave Babylon and to go back to their home in Jerusalem. Now, God's people were given, and we need to be reminded of this, they were given that land basically from the time of Abraham, where we go way back right, as their home, and they were to have a temple there, the temple where the presence of God would dwell, and, 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 and they would worship God there, you know, as, as to be the people of God and the presence of God. So to be away from Jerusalem is literally to be at that time, at that time, away from God. We can actually read this through the Old Testament. So to be away from Jerusalem is to be away from God in a sense. Now, they were freed and liberated to return back home to Jerusalem, and many people did return back. You could read that in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. We went through uh, with the D groups through the, these two books, and we, we saw that. It, it talks about the people who went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. The question is, did everyone move back, or did some people stay in Persia, modern-day Iran? Yeah, some people stayed back, apparently. Mordecai's family was one of those families that didn't go. And the question is, well, should they have gone? Yes, they should have gone. Because the prophet Isaiah gave a prophecy on behalf of the Lord that God's people in Babylon were to return home in Jerusalem, and they did not. 
So Mordecai is part of the, you would say, the disobedient people of God. We might go as far in saying that they're part of the rebellious people of God. They didn't want to walk towards God. They didn't want to worship God. I don't know what the reasons were. We may get into some of those. But, but he and his family, they stayed in this pagan country, pagan culture of, culture of Persia, and they were compromised and worldly. How many people that we meet on a regular basis, church, that's their background. We're not atheists. We believe in God. But they don't really tell you that they will worship the God of the Bible. They went to church as little kids or my dad was a pastor or was a youth pastor or whatever. They never tell you that. Same with Mordecai. He says to Esther in verse 10, don't tell anyone, right, that we worship the God of the Bible. That's pretty much what he's saying. Just keep it on download. We don't want people to know. Their faith is very private. It's not public if there is a faith in there. So, so they're disobeying the Old Testament, eating the food that they're not supposed to, engaged in the holidays that they're not supposed to. They're living where they're not supposed to. And if you ask them privately, hey, do you belong to the God of the Bible? Yeah, we do, but don't tell anyone because we're compromised. We're what, what they call in the New Testament lukewarm. That's us. Just keep it on the down low. In our day, we call these people cultural Christians, nominal Christians. If you ask Americans, they still, a, a, a majority of them will say, yes, we believe in God. Of course we believe in God. Those are cultural Christians. These are the kind of people who, who do believe, they have some belief in God, but they're possibly not truly believers. They're not necessarily walking with God. They're not necessarily following Jesus Christ. The evidence would not hold up in court if you examine their life, that's for sure. But they would say that they belong to God and they would say, yeah, we're Christian. If that's you, you have something in common with this guy, Mordecai. I hope you don't have that in common, but that's Mordecai. Now, he definitely does some good things, and we should commend Mordecai for that. He adopts Hadessa, right? Esther, his cousin, much younger cousin. He's older, so as the closest living male relative, he adopts her, but, he, but here's what he does. He lets her go to the Persian bachelorette auditions. Is he worried about her? Yes or no? Yes, he is. He is, right? Because it says in verse 11, every day he checks on her. So you kind of get the idea of what Mordecai is like, you know? Well, I hope she's okay. I hope she's okay. I hope she's going to text, Oof, you know? He's looking through the gate every single day, right? Oh, I wonder what's going on, but he doesn't say anything and he doesn't do anything. See, the reality is that a lot of us men, particularly a lot of dads, are just like that. Sometimes we sin through sins of commission. We do what we shouldn't do. That's King Xerxes. But sometimes we sin through sins of omission. We don't do what we're supposed to do. Mordecai is like Adam. Our father's sin was that he didn't say anything or didn't do anything. Oh, Adam is eating. Oh, she's going to pay for that, but I'm not going to say anything because I'm just passive and I'm just a coward. Mordecai's sin here is he doesn't say or do anything. And men, we are supposed to speak. <laughs> we are supposed to act, especially when it involves women, especially when it involves our wives and our daughters, especially when it involves our, our families and our communities and our churches. Amen. Man, this is something that I'm dealing with too. I'm preaching to myself, but there is a curse. 
(laughs) This is a curse, the curse of passivity that plagues all of us. We are not the leaders that we're supposed to be. We have this sacred and high calling on our life to lead. And instead of doing that, what do we do? Nothing, nothing. And that's the definition of passivity. And some of us act just like this in our families. Well, she's an adult now. You know, she gets to make her own decisions now. I can't really say much. I know she's dating a total loser and he doesn't believe in God. And I think they're sleeping together and I think they're going to move in together. And I'm really stressed out. I really am. And I text and I call and I check in on her and I'm worried just like Mordecai is. Well, have you said anything? No, I don't want to, I don't want to create a scene. I mean, you know, have you done anything? No, no, I haven't done anything. So I want to ask you, men, what would you do? And I'm so sorry for recreating this, this picture in your, in your head. If some nasty pervert takes your daughter for a year at the spa to compete against 400 other women with one night in bed with him, here, here's what we should not do. Well, I hope it's okay. I hope, I'm really stressed out and I don't know what to do, right? I don't know what, what, what I could say or do. Now, there's passive, and that's that. That's passive. There's passive-aggressive, right? And then there's aggressive. I vote for that. (laughs) I vote for righteously aggressive. That's what I vote for, right? Man, it's your daughter. (laughs) Don't don't just pray and feel bad. You know how sometimes we just pray for things that we should know what to do? Like, don't pray, man. Just do something about it. Who are you praying with? To God already knows what you should do. Don't just pray and feel bad and worry. Say something. Do something. Don't let the guys make the decisions for your daughters. Don't let our culture and society and government make the decisions for your marriage and for your families. Being passive kills us. And it doesn't just kill us, but it kills our families, our communities, and our churches. We need to lead and not be passive. I'm preaching to myself. We need to lead our families in the presence of God. And that's the first responsibility that we have as fathers, husbands, and men to lead our families in communing with God and in the word on a daily basis. We, we're supposed to initiate We're supposed to initiate and say, babe, instead of watching Netflix tonight, and I know that we're both tired from working, but let's just pray tonight instead. We're supposed to initiate. Man, here are some questions I want to ask us. And it's kind of rhetorical, but let me just leave this with us. Will you develop and carry out a vision for your family? Not just develop, but carry it out. Will you consistently open the Bible and pray with your family? Will you always invite your wife into what you're thinking and planning to love her and to cover her? Will you lead your family in loving and serving the church? You know what the percentage of women serving in the church today is? I mean, men are nowhere to be found. Things like 7 or 80% of people that serve in churches are women. Where are the men? Will you lean into conflict with patience and love or will you withdraw and chicken out? Will you anticipate your family's needs, make a plan, pray about it, and pursue with all that you've got? Men, will you discipline your children even when you're tired? Will you bring up difficult conversations and, and make tough decisions? Or just like Adam, when God comes calling, will we hide and point the finger to our wife? I know it's, this convicts me to the bone. I'm preaching again. I'm preaching this message to myself first. May God help us 
to break this stronghold in our life. May God help us to to break this curse in our life and to lead our families in a God-honoring way, amen? We talked about Mordecai for a little bit, but let's focus and talk about Esther for a little bit. Her name appears 51 times in the book. She's also buried in Iran, they say. She's an orphan, adopted. She's likely in her teens or maybe her early 20s. Uh, By the way, King Xerxes, they say, that he's, he's in his mid-30s, just so you have an idea. Now, Hadassah is her Hebrew name, and Esther is her Persian name. So here's something interesting. And again, I don't want to read too much into the text, but she's got two names that are mentioned in the Bible. Did you notice that? Hadassah and Esther. Well, which, which is she? She's both. It's as if she's a gal with dual identity. She's got a Persian name and a biblical name. She belongs to God, but she doesn't show publicly. She's conflicted. She belongs to God, but she lives far away from God. She says she belongs to God, but at this point, we've never seen her pray. We've never seen her open the Bible. We've never seen her worship, repent of sin. No indication that she has any relationship with God whatsoever. How many of us are just like that? How many people that call themselves Christians are just like that? Sort of a Christian, sort of a not I look at your life and I don't know what you are type of thing, you know, sort of disobedient, sort of following Jesus, but, but not following Jesus, privately believing in God, but publicly no one knows. Is she just a religious person? That's not what I've known Esther to be, right? I, is she living in rebellion against God or is she blind and doesn't even know God? Esther is a complicated character. So the question is, what's going to happen? We've got the tension mounted, Right, Xerxes has an audition. Esther is next in line. Esther's in the harem at the spa. What is she going to do? Let's read um, the next few verses, verses 12 to 18. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into the king, Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in. In the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz. I think I may be butchering that, but just go with it. The king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. And she would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came to Esther, Right, who had the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king. She asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of the reign of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all of his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the princes and gave gifts with royal generosity. That that was a mouthful. Here's the question. You ready for it? Here's the question we're going to examine for the next few minutes. Was Esther always a godly woman? Again, we're gonna, you may say, why, why, why do we care? Well, we're going to learn a lot from this. Here's what's agreed on. 
Number one, Xerxes is an awful man. Can we just vote for that? I heard a pastor say this week, all in favor, Xerxes is a Xerxes. Thought it was funny. <laughs> You're welcome. Christian joke. Number two, at the, at the end of the book of Esther, Esther is a godly woman, but only way far at the end of the book. We know for sure she's godly, but again, at the end of the book, she stops being passive. She starts being active. She starts speaking for herself, not just allowing others to speak for her. She starts to swim against the, the current of the culture and not be worldly, and she starts to be godly. Number three, Esther is perhaps the most difficult book in the entire Bible to interpret. And it doesn't give us a lot of details. Esther is told in a way that it doesn't give us feelings and intentions and motivations and, 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 and thoughts, just the facts. In addition, it doesn't give us any divine perspective. God never speaks. A prophet never stands up and I, I speak you know, for the Lord. God is never mentioned. So let me just say this. When God is clear, we need to be clear too. Amen? When it's unclear, we need to be as clear as God is. Amen? And so what I can tell you in Esther is there are times we can say this is possible, but this is probable. But sometimes we just can't get beyond that. So back to the original question. Now, was Esther always a godly woman? What I want to do for the next few minutes is present you two perspectives. There are so many, but only two. And believe it or not, we can learn lots from this. So perspective number one, option number one, Esther was always godly. She was always godly. She was amazing from beginning to the end. If you see the movie One Night with the King, anyone saw that? Esther's basically memorized verses of the Bible. Like this woman's just amazing and quoting scripture and leading Bible studies and, and women's prayer groups in the harem with all the concubines, everyone's revival left and right because this woman's absolutely amazing. Now, part of the reason why we tell the story in that way and why this movie was made that way is that there's a religious reading of scripture by a lot of us Christians and it goes like this. There are good people and there are bad people. And it's this idea that God loves the good people and uses the good people and God hates the bad people and does not use the bad people. Um, well, if that's the case, this book is worthless. <laughs> I, wh why are we reading it? <laughs> if the story is God loves and uses good people and he doesn't the bad people, that's an unrealistic and religious book. It's worthless. If that's the story, then we're all in trouble. I'll, I'll tell you that, aren't we? If that's the story, then I need to be my own savior. I have to be my own hero. I somehow need to make amends and impress God with all that I do and coming to church and serving God and by doing a lot of good things, I need to impress God. Is that what the Bible teaches? No. Is that what our faith is about? No. Or worse yet, if you've ever messed up, which is all of us, it cannot be straightened out at all because you're a bad person and God doesn't love bad people. He's not going to use bad people. So you're lost forever. I'm sorry. Church, listen to what I'm about to say. What this way of looking at the Bible, what this does is two things, two things, two uh, sides of the ditch, pride or despair, pride or despair. I'm a good person, God uses me, I'm so amazing. Or despair, it's too late, I've blown it, I'm a bad person, see you later, right? Church, this is a very important interpretive issue and problem of how we approach the Bible. And religious people who approach it, got good people, bad people, right? If you're a good person, God will bless you. If you're a bad person, God will curse you. They miss the entire message of grace. 
And the message of grace is that God loves the undeserving. God loves the ill-deserving. God uses the undeserving. And they miss the point that sometimes the people in the Bible are painfully normal, just like us. And I think Esther is painfully normal, just like you and just like me. And what happens is that with that kind of a religious reading of the Bible is that we miss all the parts about sin and our depravity and how depraved we are without God's grace. Have Have you read the Bible this way? You know, you read about Abraham, and Abraham was a man of faith, and he was, he was, who twice gave away his wife. Oh, oops, we forgot that part. Oh, that's twice too many, Abraham. (laughs) Sorry, you're a bad person now. We're like, oh, Noah was a godly and an awesome man. He built the boat that God wanted him to build. And then he got off the boat, got drunk and got naked. But no one talks about that, right? You say, whoa, no, 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 no. There's good people in the Bible. Who? David was a man after God's own heart. And not only God's own heart, but another man's wife too. That's David. Oh yeah, and then he killed the man and kept the wife, by the way. That's crazy. You don't have to be a Christian to go, that's wrong. That's totally wrong. And some of us may say, well, yeah, but David ended up being such a godly man on his deathbed. Are you kidding me? He gave an assassination hit on his deathbed right before he took his last breath. Um, am I saying now, am I saying now that church, because of all these characters in the Bible are flawed, we can be flawed too? Is that what I'm saying? No, 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 no. And this is just a license to continue our life because God affirms our sin. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we were all depraved and God saved us. And we're nothing without the grace of God that has changed us and still changing. We are right now as we speak. We should be right now as we speak being worked at by the Holy Spirit. And he's the one, the only one that can bring that change in our life. But we have a huge responsibility to open ourselves up and surrender to his work in our life. But make no mistake, we all start from the same spot. I don't care if you were raised in church or on the street. We all start from the same spot. We're all broken and we're all depraved. Amen? Let me just submit to you, this is the most amazing book ever, the Bible. And, and, and even the heroes are just little age heroes, right? And we all need a big age hero, Jesus Christ. And I don't believe that Esther was a godly woman, always a godly woman. It's possible, but it's not probable. Option two, namely that Esther is not a static and consistent character through the whole book. I don't think she is. Haman is consistent. This guy's evil from beginning to end. Xerxes is kind of the same. There's a bit of a change, chapter one and chapter two, but not much. He's not repenting of his sin. He never changes because he never repents. Let me pause for a second and say this. Those who repent are no longer static. They're dynamic. They do not stay the same. They change. We call this the journey of our sanctification or progressive sanctification, the journey of becoming more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. It means that when we meet the God of the Bible, you inevitably change and then still changing. And the longer you walk with him, the more you change. That's sanctification. So I believe that Esther had a dual identity, kind of in the world, kind of in God's kingdom, kind of sinning, kind of obeying. She's conflicted. I believe she started out as not the most godly, you know, of of women, but by the end, she's among the most godly of women. And here are my reasons. I'm not going to give you all of them, just a few that I, I haven't, I haven't um, articulated yet because we've already kind of talked about this. So reason number one, 
At this point in the story of Esther, no one's walking with God. No one is. No, one's in the, no one in the story is pointing to, you know, pointing to Jesus, walking with God. No one's praying. No one mentions God. No one's worshiping God. Number two, she could have said no. You know that? He could, she could have said no. Now, some people may say, whoa, whoa, whoa. She would have been punished. Yeah, so? <laughs> Sometimes people in the Bible say no to kings. They say no to rulers and systems, and they're punished. We call these people persecuted, right? I... That we, we call them bold. That's the truth. There's no indication, though, that she would have gotten punished. Re, uh, number three, reason number three. She's eating the food that the Old Testament forbids. So she's disobeying scriptures. And there's another guy named Daniel who lived a little bit before her. And he was a young man under a godless king. And they told him, you're going to eat this food. No, I'm not. <laughs> right? And, and, but Esther says, yes, she compromised. Now, this is what I believe happens to Esther in the story. God gets a hold of her heart and she has a conversion experience of sorts and she starts to grow spiritually as a person. Now, if you're saved and in Christ, that's what we all experience at some point in life. Now, I don't want to condemn Esther. What I want to do is I want to invite everyone whose story is like Esther to meet Esther's God and to change like Esther did. Amen? Next point, hope for worldly people. Don't you find a great hope in the story of Esther? <laughs> God takes messed up people, perverted people, rebellious people, people who are not walking with him, people who are not obeying him, and he gives them grace. He gives them favor and he chooses them. Wow, that's hope. Here's a little hope for rebellious and worldly people. And some of us maybe are God's worldly people tongue-in-cheek, God's worldly people. Number one, like Esther, God walks with you even when you don't walk with him. This is beautiful. Esther's not going to the synagogue. She's not reading her Bible. She's not praying, not worshiping. But God, through his subtle, soft hand of providence, he is working through the circumstances of her life. And even when she makes bad decisions or decisions are made that get her in bad situations, God's still there working it out working with her, working on her. How encouraging is that? Some of us may say, I've, I've, been, I've not been walking with God for years. Good news for you. God's been walking with you. He's right there. He's not far. He's a committed God. He's so committed to your highest and your best, to, to saving you and placing you in Christ and changing you so that you look more and more like his son, Jesus, that he's willing to allow suffering in your life to get you there. He is faithful, and he's a committed God that loves you. Number two, like Esther, God can get you through the trouble you've gotten yourself into, through the trouble that you've gotten yourself into. God's not to blame for some, some of the decisions that Mordecai, Xerxes, and perhaps even Esther have made. They've made some decisions that have Esther in a very dangerous and risky situation. How many of us are like Esther? <laughs> a lot of us. Because of choices you've made and others have made, your life right now is very complicated. You're like, my kids don't listen to me. They don't love the Lord. It's a mess. Or we have lots of kids. We're not even married. It's a disaster. It's complicated. I'm in a situation I can't get myself out of. I'm kind of stuck like Esther. Once they put the crown on her head and call her the queen and sit her up front, she's kind of stuck there for a little while, isn't she? But listen, 
God gets her through it. How amazing. God doesn't get her out of it. God doesn't get her around it. God works through his invisible hand of providence to get her through it. So let me just encourage us this morning. That's exactly what he's doing in your life and in my life. Even if you've made bad decisions and others have made bad decisions that got you in difficult situations, God will, by his providential hand, get you through it. He is faithful. Amen? And number three, Like Esther, God needs to save you before you can help save anyone else. I'll say that again. God needs to save you before you can can help save anyone else. We think about lots of people. We're concerned about lots of people. We want to help lots of people. But before Esther can be the one that God uses to help the people, God has to first save Esther. God needs to change her heart. God needs to change her mind. God needs to change her life so that she can be part of his plan. So in the same way, God needs to save you before he can have you help him save others. And this is by turning from sin. This is by trusting in Jesus, getting a new nature, getting a new heart that only God can give you. And how amazing that is. Your punishment goes to him, right? And the new life comes to you so that you can now have that conversion experience and that change in character, just like Esther. And the last point, and we're done. One minute. Jesus is a better savior. Jesus is a better savior. I want to end with this thought that ultimately, I said, did I say one minute? Maybe two or three, okay? Is that okay? Ultimately, Esther is a type of Christ. She's not Christ, but she's a type of Christ. And so that we understand each other here, she is a portrait, a picture, a sign, a big neon sign, a symbol pointing to Jesus Christ. And the reality is that the whole Bible is about Jesus. We know this. It's for us, but it's ultimately about him. It was always about him. And so what we need to be reminded is that at this point in history, at this point in the story of Esther, God's people are waiting for a greater king. They are, right? They're waiting eagerly for another kingdom, another savior, another deliverer. And everyone and everything is yearning and longing and leaning toward the coming of the Messiah. And so Esther is a type of Christ. She's a little picture in a tiny little portrait pointing to Jesus Christ. Just like Esther, Jesus comes from a line of God's covenant people. Just like Esther, Jesus grew up far away from his home, his heavenly home. Just like Esther, Jesus grew up in a sinful world filled with temptation and compromise. Just like Esther, Jesus' identity was unknown for for his early years of ministry or or just early years. They, They didn't see him as God. Not even his family saw him as God, right? Like Esther, Jesus was adopted by an earthly father, Joseph. Just like Esther, Jesus grew up in in, in poor and humble circumstances. Just like Esther, Jesus was an unlikely choice for royalty. Just like Esther, Jesus stood up against evil rulers to save his people. And just like Esther, Jesus saved, saved his people or saves his people from death. Esther was willing to lay her, her life down so that her people could be saved. Jesus laid down his life so that we would have eternal life and not have to die in our sin eternally. Now, church, this goes without saying, but Jesus is the true Savior and not Esther. She points to Jesus as should all of us. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.